Revelation chapter 14 uh, tonight. And then just one announcement as we uh, head in that direction. Uh, we announced it this morning, but uh, some come in the evening that aren't here in the morning. We do have an Israel trip coming up in 2007, uh, March 19th through the 1st, April 1st. And uh, if that's a trip that you're uh, interested in being a part of, we're trying to get a feel for the level of interest. It's uh, in terms of booking uh, for it. So uh, there'll be a table out in the fellowship hall that you can go to and, and sign up your level of, of interest related to that. And then we can move forward in terms of planning uh, for that trip. In chapter 14 of uh, revelation here we come to another uh, parenthetical passage where uh, God takes and breaks away from the sequence of events through that seven-year uh, tribulation period and uh, just kind of broods on uh, several different areas of what's going on in uh, during this part of the great tribulation period and here it is uh, where we get to 14 we're toward the end of the great tribulation now certainly in the last three and a half years and and all and and giving us insight into some of uh, some of the things that in a straight clean chronology he, he might not want to take tangents on because we get lost in it so he he groups his tangents uh, so to speak and I'm glad he's not the only one uh, that does that but anyway here we get to chapter 14 verse 1 and then John declares then I looked and behold a lamb standing on Mount Zion and with him 144,000 having his father's name written on their foreheads. And so John looks and he sees uh, a lamb and the lamb is certainly Jesus standing on Mount Zion. Mount Zion is one of the mountains surrounding uh, Jerusalem. And uh, it appears that John is looking uh, ahead to the day when Jesus returns at his second coming. We know that when he makes his second coming, which we'll look into in depth later in the Revelation, that he makes his way to the city of Jerusalem uh, by way of the valley of Megiddo, where uh, a very, very short, uh, quick battle, the, the battle of Armageddon that occurs there, and then he makes his way to Jerusalem. He comes down uh, on the Mount of Olives, uh, where, uh, where he had ascended unto the Father uh, 2,000 years ago. He ascends uh, or, or descends then on the Mount of Olives and then makes an entrance into Jerusalem, sets up his 1,000-year uh, reign. Now, when he does that at his second coming, uh, as you might imagine, word of that will uh, spread. Uh, not that any of the press will still uh, be alive, but uh, by, I'm just kidding. But by other, um, they're easy to pick on right now. But but by by other means, the news is going to get out that um, the uh, Antichrist and the false prophet have been uh, defeated and uh, cast into an alert, eternal lake of fire. That Satan has now been bound, and that the earth is now under new management. That Jesus has returned, and He is establishing His kingdom. So as you might imagine. Imagine 
As word of that gets out all around the world, people begin to make their way to the place that Jesus is, that is Jerusalem. And uh, the Jews that had fled out into the Judean wilderness over into the area of Jordan and uh, supernaturally protected by God in that place, they're certainly going to come in great numbers to Jerusalem to see, uh, to see Messiah, to see Jesus. Uh, other Gentiles that have survived the great tribulation without taking the mark of the beast, they will doubtless make their way there. It's interesting that uh, when John looks at Jesus, he is no longer on the Mount of Olives, but, uh, but he is there on Mount Zion, which is a neighboring uh, mount there in the city of, of Jerusalem. The 144,000 have kind of an advantage that maybe somebody else that doesn't know the Bible uh, might not have. They would know that God had prophesied in Daniel chapter uh, 12 that from the time that the Antichrist sets up the abomination which causes desolation at the three and a half year mark of the great tribulation until the end will be 1,260 days. So the 144,000, as we saw in chapter 7, they are Jewish, they are male, they are virgins, uh, they are pure, and they have been witnessing and, and supernaturally, divinely protected by God to serve God on the earth during the seven-year uh, tribulation period. So uh, it isn't hard to understand that they, knowing their Bible, would know the very day of Jesus' second coming, that they would then make their way to Jerusalem, be uh, perhaps an eyewitness to it, and then join him as he begins now to establish his reign uh, upon uh, the earth. Notice that they have, we're told, the name, uh, his father's name, Jesus' uh, father's name written on their foreheads. And so this is doubtless the means by which they were sealed and identified as God's property or belonging uh, to God. Now in, in uh, chapter 7 when he talks about the 144,000, uh, how many were there? There's 144,000, wasn't there? So you get to the other end of the whole great tribulation, the whole mess, the whole everything and, uh, and all and heading into the millennial reign. How many of them are there? 144,000. He didn't lose a single one. So when the Lord seals, he knows how to keep what's sealed. He knows how to keep what is his own. And one of the beautiful truths about us as Christians in the Bible is that we are sealed by the Holy Spirit. And God is faithful not only to save us, but he is faithful to keep us. That's why God has given us a finished salvation. When Jesus was on the cross, he cried out, it is finished. He's provided us with a finished salvation. He didn't cry out, and I'm not, not being, uh, uh, you know, lax in any kind of a way, but he didn't say it is begun or it has been started, that he started a salvation for us. Now it's up to us to bring it to its completion in order for us to be saved. And the reason that he doesn't do it that way is you and I aren't faithful enough for that. He took one look at you and me, and he said, we better give him a finished salvation. And uh, because if it depends on their faithfulness, it's not going to happen. So he saves us on the basis of grace. And then he seals us. 
And he's the, going to be the one that keeps us all the way through this life and then on into the beauty of eternity that is uh, out ahead of us. And so here it's, it's beautiful, really, the first verse of, of chapter 14 where Jesus comes, he establishes his kingdom. The devil doesn't win. The Antichrist doesn't win. The false prophet doesn't win. Jesus wins, and you're on the winning side. That feels pretty good, doesn't it? And to know the outcome of the whole thing. Uh, ahead of time. And then John, in verse 2, his focus is drawn away from the earth and all of that, and his focus drawn back up into heaven. And I heard a voice from heaven, like the voice of many waters. And so, you know, kind of a Niagara Falls, loud, you know, uh, rumbling of, of voices. And then, like the voice of loud thunder, so that clarity and, and uh, sharpness to it and all. And I heard the sound of harpists playing their harps. There it is. They, I did, you know, so the people say, so where's the harps? See, people have ideas. It was cute that all we'll do in heaven is sit on a cloud, play a harp. Now I'm fine with that if that's what it turns out to be, but it's, it's a little more involved than that, I'm sure. One of the brothers, and, I'm, I'm, and I say this affectionately uh, concerning him, which means I'm going to say something uh, terrible. But anyway, uh, I'm really not. I, I wouldn't do it. But one of the brothers came up, we were talking about earlier in Revelation, and casting our crowns, standing on the glass, you see, casting our crowns before the Lord and, and singing and all. And, and he, he just kind of asked, is, is that like all we're going to do uh, forever and ever? Uh, you know, he's probably a type A, uh, likes to, you know, likes to get some things done, you know, probably gets a feel that, okay, after about 15 minutes, I'll, I'll have enough of that, and what else do we do up there? I mean, are there any amusement parks or something? He's not saying that. I'm not saying that he... But there's that question about that, you know, is that... And, uh, and of course, I don't know all about heaven. I know that shocks you. But, but I don't know, and I just know it's going to be heaven. I just know it's going to be great and all. And sometimes people do have that idea that um, we're just going to get up there and we're going to play these harps, and what kind of fun is that going to be? Obviously, such a person has never heard a skilled harpist. But uh, it, it'll be beautiful what it is. But here is a very large group of people, and uh, they are uh, singing something, as we'll see in just a moment. They're being accompanied by uh, harp, uh, the sound of harpists going on. And you notice verse 3, they sang. So it's a group that are singing, and they sang a new song before the throne. John hasn't heard this song before in all that he's recorded so far of the Revelation. And this new song is before the four living creatures and the elders and no one could learn that song except the 144,000 in addition to the larger group that were, were singing it who were redeemed from the earth. Now this, this creates a little problem for some of us because earlier, I think it is in chapter 5, uh, there's a great group of people that sing uh, a beautiful song to the Lord in heaven. And as they're singing uh, to the Lord in heaven, the 24 elders join in the song. And part of that song speaks about being redeemed. So only the redeemed can sing it. The four living creatures don't sing it. They're angelic beings of some kind. But here, the, the uh, elders kind of sit on their hands, so to speak, and they don't join in 
and yet they're redeemed. So why aren't they singing in just this other group? Because uh, the, the word, when it speaks of those being redeemed here, probably refers to not only those that are saved, but those that have been redeemed uh, out of the great tribulation period. So you're talking about people who came to know the Lord, trusted in Him as their Jesus as their Lord and their Savior during the great tribulation period, were martyred for their faith. Here you have the 144,000 who have lived through the great tribulation, been faithful to the Lord also. They have this common experience of having been through that and been redeemed out of it and through it, and now they sing this song to the Lord. Now, and, and, but it's not recorded for us, just enough to know that they did. Now, those uh, 144,000 are described a little more fully here in verse 4, and we looked at them a little bit uh, when we were in chapter 7. Uh, these are the ones who were not defiled with women, for they are virgins. And so that tells us that they're male. It tells us that they're virgins. So beautiful thing about this 144,000, they have stayed pure, pure to the Lord for that whole seven year uh, period at a time when on the earth uh, uh, sexual immorality sexual sin will be like it's never been before I wouldn't want to know what this world is like once the Holy Spirit in any sense of godly restraint is removed from this world what this world will become sexually and yet they take and they remain uh, uh, faithful to the Lord they remain pure uh, f uh, to the Lord in, in all of that. It's very, very beautiful, isn't it? That same spirit indwells us, the ability to do that. Sometimes we think, oh, this is, we live in the most, you know, uh, sexually immoral, you know, part of human history. Not true. Uh, any study of Rome and uh, the Roman Empire, the time where these early Christians were living for the Lord, repenting, turning to God, Rome was a very, very decadent culture, in, uh, and, and especially on the sexual side of, of things. And these are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. So you don't have the Lamb following them, they follow the Lamb. And uh, we know from chapter 7 that they were called servants of the Lord. Whatever he wants, they are there just to serve him now. And that millennial kingdom and, and then beyond. Just beautiful as you, as you look at this 140. I can't wait to see them. Can't wait to meet them. But this is their heart toward the Lord to serve him. And these were redeemed from among men, being first fruits to God and to the Lamb. And so they are the first of many Jews who will come to recognize Jesus as the Messiah uh, at his second coming. These 144,000 have already long before that. But uh, as, as the Jews then come out of that uh, kind of protection that they've had out in the wilderness, many of them I have no doubt will already have recognized because of the prophecies of Matthew chapter 24 and when you see the abomination that causes desolation run for your lives and all they'll recognize that Jesus was telling them the truth but so there's going to be a, a great number of Jews who will then the light will go on for them a recognition of Jesus as the Messiah Zechariah chapter 12 verse 10 is uh, beautiful in this vein God spoke through Zechariah uh, concerning the same thing and he said and I will pour on the house of David Jews and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication 
And then they will look on me whom they have pierced. They will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son. That's the deepest mourning. And grieve for him as one grieves for a newborn. There will be that, that recognition. There, It will be kind of bittersweet. They will recognize him as the promised Messiah based upon the scriptures and and that will be a wonderful thing. But then there will be that deep grief over what it is that he went through and and, uh, how blind they were to him at his his first coming. All that they uh, were a part of putting him through along with the Romans. It was Jew and Gentile alike. It was for all of our our sins. And then verse 5, in their mouth was found no deceit. Again, Tribulation period is going to be a lying period. I mean, truth is going to be hard to find. And uh, the Antichrist, we're told, he just lies and lies and lies and blasphemes and lies and, and all of this. And here in, the, in that environment, no deceit found in their mouth. Their, their mouth was sanctified to God. That can happen even in a, uh, we're in a public school or private school or any work environment. We don't have to be like everything else that's being said there. In their mouth was found no deceit, for they were without fault before the throne of God. In other words, they'd been faithful to what God had called them uh, to do during that great tribulation period when nobody else virtually in the world was being faithful. And then John records a series of three angels that proceed to come forth and deliver a message. And uh, angel number one in verse six, and then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven. Uh, having uh, the everlasting gospel. And the word gospel means good news. It means great news. And the gospel is, speaks of Jesus' death, his burial, and his resurrection. And the forgiveness of sins and salvation that is found in those, those series of events. In three days, the three greatest events in the history of mankind occurred. And Jesus' death upon the cross for our sins his burial, and on the third day, uh, rising from the dead. And Jesus not only gaining victory over death and, uh, and sin and the devil and all of these things himself, but then gaining that victory in a way that he could then share it with, with you and I. God is very, very wise and very gracious. And he found a way to save us, but it required the death of Jesus for that to happen. So it's an everlasting gospel. Isn't it great to have good news and, and not only to have great news about uh, spiritual things, about our eternity and all, but when that good news is called everlasting. In other words, it's not good news today, uh, you know, and then the Asian stock market uh, dumps, and then, you know, now it's uh, now uh, what was good news yesterday is bad news today. This is, this is everlasting good news. It never changes on us. And the reason the gospel is an everlasting gospel doesn't need to be improved it doesn't need to be changed. It, when you got it right the first time, you can make it everlasting. And that's, that's what it is. And they, go, they have this everlasting gospel, and they go forth flying in the midst of heaven, and they preach it to those who dwell on the earth during the great tribulation time. To every nation, tribe, tongue, and people everywhere in the world, 
Every single person in the whole wide world during the Great Tribulation period is going to hear the gospel from this angel. Jew, Gentile, everybody is going to hear that uh, gospel. And this is what they say. Uh, this angel says with a loud voice, Fear God rather than the Antichrist and give glory to him rather than the Antichrist. For the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. So it's interesting, Ken Ham was here recently and he talked about uh, witnessing uh, to those that don't uh, come, uh, you, you know, you can't discuss uh, things of the Bible with them from a Bible background. You have to speak to them first as uh, God is the creator and is the designer of the world. And the angel follows the model here and, and comes to them as, as those having no biblical background at all and tells them to worship the one who made the heaven, the earth, the sea, and, and the springs uh, of, of water. And so that gospel message is declared throughout uh, the entire world. All of that, just as Jesus said it would be, in Matthew chapter 24, verse 14, he said, And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. Now, sometimes people look at that and they say, Well, Jesus can't come back until the gospel is preached to everyone. And, uh, well, he can come back any time. And, and the gospel will be preached. Doesn't mean we shouldn't be about the Lord's business related to the Great Commission. But it will even be supernaturally preached uh, during the Great Tribulation period. And then the end of all of this at Jesus' second coming uh, then uh, occurs. Then the second angel, verse 8, followed saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city, because she has made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. And that's talking about, sex, uh, not sexual, but spiritual uh, fornication or, or spiritual uh, unfaithfulness uh, to God. So this angel comes forth, announces to the whole world, Babylon is fallen, uh, is fallen. And so there's the uh, repetition of it. Babylon represents, and we'll see it as we get into chapter 17 and 18, it represents uh, the whole, all of the world systems under the control of the Antichrist. And, uh, and the Antichrist is going to control the religious systems of the world, the economic systems of the world, the political systems of the world. He is going to control all of it during the Great Tribulation uh, period. And so it speaks about all that is under his control. And the angel uh, goes throughout the earth and declares to everyone, it's all going to fall. It's all going to burn and, and warns them. It's interesting that here in verse 6 and 7, where the angel goes forth and, and uh, declares that everlasting gospel, what is God doing? He's still trying to reach people. He's still calling on them to believe in the Lord. He's still trying to get people to turn to him. I mean, it's amazing how patient he is. The, the interesting thing about uh, the gospel being preached, and we'll come back to Babylon, though, related to this, the interesting thing about the gospel being preached is it represents the grace of God to us and to the world at that time, but it also makes the world responsible for what they do with the gospel. 
So nobody at the end of the tribulation will be able to say, hey, nobody told me right from wrong or up from down or good from bad or what I was supposed to do to be saved. God's going to take care of all that. Everyone will know. And as a part of that, they will be responsible for what they do with that. So that anybody that ends up in an eternal lake of fire, ends up eternally judged uh, for having rejected the gospel, they will be personally responsible for that. God will uh, be innocent in uh, related to uh, all, all of that. And, and so he's still reaching out. One of the crazy things... And it's good to know if you sit here tonight and you have never trusted in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. You've never uh, trusted in him as your Savior and as your Lord. Every time you hear the gospel about how Jesus died on the cross for your sins, he was buried, he rose again on the third day, he is the Savior, that is the salvation that pleases heaven, it pleases the Father, and you need to put your trust in the Savior and the salvation that pleases heaven and the Father and, and get on the right side of, of things with God and what you've been created for and intended for you. Every single time we hear that message and we do not respond to it by accepting it into our heart, we must of necessity harden our heart to the message to say no to it. Even if we say, uh, say I'm going to say no to it for now, but one day I'm going to do it. To do that, I am hardening my heart. And it will require an even greater something than the next time for me then to surrender to the Lord. And sometimes you can get people, they've been in church, they know what the right way is. It's no secret to them. They know about Christ, they know about salvation, they know all about those things, and they've sat through, you know, one message after another or one gospel presentation after another, after another, after another, and then they can sit and listen to it again. No conviction, no sense of need. The first time they heard it, you know, I know I should, I know I should, I know I should. I just want another week, you know. And then three years later, I mean, they hear it and they're just kind of, you know, I wonder if it's going to be crowded at Baja Fresh, you know, the thing. And something dangerous is happening. That's why for you here tonight, if you don't know the Lord, that today is the day of salvation. Now's the time to do it. You're hearing God's voice today. Can you believe that God would be willing to speak to us? That whole thing that's going on, that's God. Individually, personally, almost six billion people on the face of the planet, and he cares enough about me to do that, to bear witness to the truth in my life. And, and it's important when he's doing that to listen to him, obey him and whatever he's calling me to do, especially unto salvation. So God is still reaching out to the world this whole time. And he warns the world against aligning themselves with, with Babylon, that it is going to fall. And Babylon also speaks about this big commercial system of, of the world and, and uh, that it's going to fall. Everything in this world is going to burn it's all going to burn. That's, I think it's, it's kind of freeing to say, isn't it? It's going to burn. <laughs> I mean, it may burn before you finish your payments. And it's just going to all burn. It's all temporal. Yeah, that excited you. That excited you. This is the kind of crowd I have, Lord, here on this thing. This is what you send me. I'm just kidding. 
So, but, but the, the, the repetition, is fallen, is fallen, because the world looks, and especially when the church has been removed from the world, and now everybody thinks, all right, we got rid of those people that are holding everything up, you know, and keeping us from making our quantum leap, you know, as in the evolutionary process as human beings, and, and, and this thing is just going to get better and better and better, and for three and a half years of the Great Tribulation, it is going to get better and better, and then the bottom's going to fall out. And it's going to be unbelievable to people to think that this whole world... I mean, what do you think the value of New York City is? Just in terms of real estate, not even what's in the apartments and in the houses and in the banks and all. And the the tendency to look at the world and say, this is permanent, man. This is going to go on forever. This This is never going to fall. It's always been here. It's always going to be here. And in one hour, we'll see when we get to chapter 18 gone gone and he's warning the world of that don't get sucked into all that materialism sell your soul for material things it's going to be destroyed and then the third angel verse 9 he followed them saying with a loud voice if anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand he himself will also drink of the wine of the wrath of God which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the lamb and the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever and they have no rest day or night who worship the beast and his image and whoever receives the mark of his name now when we talked about the mark of the beast last week in chapter 13 there's a sense in which we ought to have said a little bit uh, hold that thought because there's a little more uh, revelation given of it in in chapter 14 and as I mentioned last week you don't have to worry about you know going into Disneyland and then you leave and they're going to stamp one of your hands or give them a left you can do it any way you want but that's not the mark of the beast and even if you take one of these health chips you know and they put it someplace uh, it might be a good idea not to have it on your right hand or in your if anybody's mind if i put that on your forehead i mean it probably is can we put it somewhere else you know like on my big toe or something like that and but but when when people take the mark of the beast they will know what they're doing and that's what that's what this angel the angel warns the whole world that what you're being asked to take and and this mark that you're being asked to take that there it is the mark of the beast there are eternal consequences for it anyone who takes this mark has no hope of ever getting into heaven and they have and, and their their portion forever and ever will be eternal torment so that Again, God is he's trying to warn people away. He's still trying to reach people. So that everyone who takes the mark is not going to be some gullible person who didn't know what they were doing. It'll be a person who is saying, I want to be identified with this Antichrist. They won't think he's an Antichrist. They're going to think he's, you know, the, the greatest thing to ever hit the world. 
and I want to be forever identified with him, and I don't care about God, I don't care about his ways, I don't care about his book, I don't care about his promises, I don't care about heaven, I don't care about his Messiah. I'm going to align myself with this guy, and I'm going wherever he goes. He's headed for an eternal lake of fire. And the Bible teaches, interesting about the eternal lake of fire, it was never created for man. It was created for Satan and the angels who followed him in his rebellion. But if a person is determined to reject God and follow the devil and, and, and where he's going to lead, then that's where he leads. And God's up front about it. So here is a, is a clear indication that, that, uh, uh, of, of the fact that people are going to know exactly what they're doing when they take that mark of the beast. That's interesting. You read about the whole thing and the, and the torment, the cup of his indignation, and tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels, the presence of the Lamb. Verse 11, the smoke of their torment forever, day and night, no rest, day or night, and, and, and all. And wow. We are on planet Earth. Now, I know I've said this three or four times in the course of the series in different ways. Try to mix it up. Same text, you know, I mean, different text, same sermon. It's kind of how you do it. We are on planet Earth in the insane asylum. This is the nutty place. This is the cuckoo place. Heaven is the sane place. Heaven is the holy place. Heaven is the right place. And when heaven takes and looks at the world and the rejection of God and sin and all of that, and, and when they look at the fact... Now, remember what the sin is. These people will not end up in a place of torment and all of this because they were liars or cheats or thieves or any. No one ends up in hell because they're that. Nobody ends up in hell because of that. People end up in heaven or hell on the basis of what I do with Christ, what I do with Jesus. That's why they end up where they end up for one single sin, the sin of a lifelong rejection of Jesus as the Christ, the Messiah, and as their Savior, and as their Lord. That's what determines an eternal destination. And when heaven looks at God incarnate being born into a world to then die for the sins of man, and not merely to die for our sins, but to die the death of the cross for Jesus to go through all that he went through to provide us with salvation when heaven looks at all of that and then looks at a mere human being I won't speak of you I'll speak of me if I were to reject Jesus heaven would look at me in my puniness and my patheticness and me turning my nose up at what God has done for me, Jesus has done for me, heaven has done for me, and rejecting all of that. And in heaven, there isn't a, nobody's even squeamish about the fact that that 
is something that deserves an eternal judgment. And I believe it. And I believe that it does. And I think it's good to just settle down with the scriptures and remember heaven is the only place that's seeing this straight. This is so fallen, we can't believe how fallen it is. And we need to listen to what God has to say about it. And we need to trust in Jesus for, the, for, for our forgiveness and so that we can go into heaven. And here's the patience, verse 12, of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Christ. And so in verse 12, he encourages those who are on the earth that are not going to take the mark of the beast and because they have trusted in Jesus as their Savior. So they're not going to take the mark of the beast, but they know at this point in the great tribulation, it means they're going to die. And so what the angel is, is speaking here is to those that are in that place, that in light of what happens to those who do take the mark of the beast, death, physical death, is a smaller thing to endure. Remember, Jesus said, don't be afraid of those who can take your, your physical life. Be afraid of the one who can take your life and then throw your soul in, into eternal lake of fire. That's who you fear. And so there's that encouragement. Yeah, you're going you're to be martyred now for staying faithful, but the alternative is infinitely worse. And then I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, right, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. That is, they're going to be martyred for their faith. Yes, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works follow them. That's interesting too, isn't it? So here's heaven, and the Spirit looks at these saints that are now going to be martyred in this evil world at this time. And, and, and all. And notice how they look at death. It's described as a, a way in which they'll now rest from their labors. They will gain relief from all that they've been going through on the earth to stay faithful to the Lord, and their works will follow them into heaven. The reward that's associated with staying faithful to the Lord. It's very peaceful. I like it doesn't mean that it's not horrible and gruesome what's going on in the world and all, but it's, it's a beautiful way to see death from the vantage point of, of heaven. And then I looked, and here now John's attention is, is drawn uh, to what we know as uh, the uh, Battle of Armageddon. And uh, so he's instructed to uh, now uh, write, or, or he's allowed to witness it, and now he's going to write of the great winepress of God's uh, wrath. So at this point in, in the Great Tribulation, nobody wants God's grace. Nobody wants his Savior. Nobody wants anything to do with him. And so now there's only justice uh, remaining. And then I looked, and behold, a white cloud. And on the cloud sat one like the Son of Man. The Son of Man is a very common reference to Jesus. And he has on his head a golden crown. So that speaks uh, of the fact that he is a king. And uh, the gold speaks of the fact that he is, you know, uh, just the greatest uh, king, the most valuable uh, king. It's interesting that all this rebellion is going on on the earth, and Jesus is still wearing the crown. What the world thinks of him, what the world does with him, 
What an individual thinks of him, what an individual does with him, changes nothing about him. He is what he is. He is who he is, no matter what we do with him. And he is still the king. And he's got that crown on his head and, uh, uh, and in his hand a sharp sickle, which seems to represent judgment here. And then another angel comes out of the temple there in heaven, crying with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, thrust in your uh, sickle and reap, for the time has come for you to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. And so here comes maybe an angelic messenger delivering a message from the Father to Jesus to go ahead and and begin that whole process of the second coming. Or uh, maybe he kind of represents our prayers, you know, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth even as it is in heaven and he's expressing the same thing in his own way to the Lord let's bring this whole madness to an end and establish your kingdom but he comes to uh, the Lord Jesus and invites him now to reap for the harvest of the earth is ripe the word ripe there at the end of of verse 15 is a very very important um, word And and the word actually means in the Greek it means over Ripe and overripe means something is rotten. Uh, if you've ever, uh, uh, you know, sometimes we go in phases in our house. Well, sometimes I go in phases at our house uh, in terms of, you know, what I'll eat. And so sometimes I'll be in this fruit thing, you know, and I'll be eating fruit regularly and stuff like that. And then pretty soon I just eat uh, ho-hos and Twinkies, you know, for two months. But anyway, enough about my struggles. So they, so anyway, but, so, but my wife will be buying this fruit and buying this fruit and everything. And then all of a sudden I head into some, uh, you know, other phase or whatever. And so then it just sits there and, and then I'll look over there and there's the peaches and the whole deal you know when the season is right and if you've ever gone over to a basket and it's always a bad sign when you go to reach toward it and these little flies go all over the place it's always a bad sign and you go you grab that peach and you pull it up and it's just all rotten on the bottom isn't it it's very unappealing you're never tempted to eat it because it's overripe when something is overripe it's it's uh Rotten. And so what do, we, what do we say about it? Well, can you cut it out and even... No, it's too far gone. When something's overripe and it's rotten, it's too far gone. There's nothing you can do with it but throw it out. And at this point in time, in the great tribulation, at the, at the very end here, God looks at it and he says, it's too far gone. There's nothing else we can do with it but throw it out. And God's the only one that knows when that place is in human history we can't judge that we can't determine that but there does come a point when he looks and says no one else is going to come to me even during the great tribulation period now let's bring this whole thing to a close you know and and set up the 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 kingdom of of God so it's good for nothing God has said in his word he won't always strive with man and and so uh, it's good for nothing now reap the harvest harvest the earth bring the judgment bring an end to this rottenness and so he who sat on the cloud thrust in his sickle on the earth and the earth was reaped and then another angel came out of the temple which is in heaven 
He also having a sharp sickle. And if you've ever cut grapes, you know, if you in the harvest thing, those little knives, you know, that look, they're little tiny sickles, but uh, that's how you do it. And another angel came out from uh, the altar, verse 18. So you've got another one on top of the other one and came out from the altar. The first one comes from the temple. This one comes from the altar who had power over fire. And he cried with a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle saying, thrust in your sharp sickle gather the clusters of the vine of the earth for her grapes are fully ripe and so the angel thrust in his sickle into the earth gathered the vine of the earth the rottenness of the fruit threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God and the winepress was trampled outside the city and the blood came out of the winepress up to a horse's bri- the horse's bridles for 1,600 furlongs. And, uh, and so here is, is the uh, wickedness is harvested uh, like grapes, uh, so to speak, and, and they're thrown into this big uh, vat. And I, I don't know, I, you know, I'm raised the generation that I am. Never, but you've, maybe you've seen those big, uh, or those big uh, wine presses where they throw all the grapes in this big old thing and now they, they do it by automation thankfully but in the old days in the time that this was written people would get in there with their feet you know if you ever saw the Lucy episode I mean it's really bad to introduce her at this point in the whole thing but you ever see it you know and she's doing that thing and the other girls doing her thing and and all but that's how they would stomp it and then the juice would roll out into a vat and be stored. And so you've got all of this uh, wickedness and everything and and, in the whole world being thrown into this vat. Now God is going to judge it. He's going to crush it. He's going to bring an end to it. And as he does, the blood from this battle, speaking of Armageddon, is is going to cover uh, what he says here, 1,600 furlongs, and the blood will be as high as a horse's bridle, four to five feet. In other words, it's going to be an unbelievable carnage at Armageddon when the armies of the world gather together to fight one another and then they come and turn and attempt <coughs> excuse me, to fight Jesus at his, his second coming. We know uh, from <clears throat> Daniel chapter 11, excuse me a moment, from Daniel chapter 11 that during all of this time the Antichrist his whole kingdom is crumbling he hears news from North Africa from Libya uh, Ethiopia Egypt uh, a rebellion is being led in that part of the world against him he takes his army down out of Europe through Israel down and he crushes the rebellion against him in northern uh, Africa but while he's down there crushing that rebellion he gets news that a great ar- two other great armies are now coming against them they, they recognize weakness in the Antichrist at this point and uh, so an army comes out of the north probably a rebuilt Russian army uh, following that uh, destruction of Ezekiel 37 38 39 and um, and then an army coming 
out of the east, a huge number. So he hears about the threat that's behind him. He knows that he's being encircled. He leaves off the attack on the south, goes back up through uh, the nation of Israel uh, and all through Jerusalem with his army back up into the northern section of Israel in, in a valley that's called the Jezreel Valley today or the Valley of Megiddo. These three armies come together to fight each other and then uh, they are demonically, you know, brought together and, and as they're about to fight each other, Jesus makes his second coming and they decide this is a better target. Let's fight against him and end all of our problems and they're wiped out. Now, the reason that this is all very, very interesting is if you've ever been to Israel or you got a map of Israel in the back of your Bible, the Jezreel Valley or the uh, Valley of Megiddo is all the way up in the northern part of Israel. It's up by uh, Mount Carmel. And uh, so you've got this gigantic valley that's there, and we always go to a place where we overlook it and, and all the ancient city of Megiddo when we're over in Israel. And you look at that valley, and you can see where the armies are going to come uh, together to fight in, in this particular battle. Now, the interesting thing, though, here, the insight that we get from John is that this carnage goes, uh, it, it covers 1,600 furlongs, which is 180 miles. The Valley of Jezreel is not 180 miles. It's much smaller than that in its length. And you take that, that northernmost part of the Valley of Megiddo, and you go 180 miles down all through that valley. It takes you right through Jerusalem, and it takes you past the Dead Sea and down into the area of Edom to the south of the Dead Sea. In other words, when Jesus first comes in and he hits this army, these armies that have gathered together now to fight him, his initial contact with them is going to be in the northernmost part of Israel, in that valley of Megiddo. But the supply lines, the reinforcements, the everything that is following this army of the Antichrist is going to stretch the length of Israel all the way through Jerusalem, the Kidron Valley, the, the city that's spoken about in verse 20 uh, has to be Jerusalem. They're going to go through Jerusalem, out into the wilderness, down into the Dead Sea area, and still be coming up from Africa in, in the area uh, south of the Dead Sea. And so that is going to be the extent of the destruction. The entirety of the army will be wiped out. That's how far, for those of you who have stood up on, on, on Megiddo and looked out and you know where Jerusalem, how much of a bus ride it was to get down there, that carnage is going to go that far and further up to a horse's bridle. In other words, the bodies will be stacked five, four, five, six feet high in, in that carnage and and so the insight here to the the, va the 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 battle of armageddon and it is that battle though as destructive as it is it is a righteous battle and it brings an end to man's rebellion prior to the kingdom age against god and then god is able to establish his kingdom
Is there anybody sitting here right now that you have never, ever asked Jesus into your heart as your Savior and as your Lord, and you want to do that tonight? Just raise your hand wherever you are. Anybody? I mean, it's rough. I know it's rough. But I'll, I'll meet you down here. I'll, I'll walk you through it. But before we partake of communion, no one who is not a Christian, no one who has rejected Jesus from being in their life, again, how heaven sees that, it's just an affront for any mere human being to treat God and the invitation of God that way. God respects our free will. He never forces himself on anyone, but it does not minimize the affront that it is. And so we want everybody that wants to partake of communion tonight to do that. And maybe you're not saved yet and you'd like to do that tonight. I'd like to pray with you to receive the Lord into your heart tonight and then you can do it. But there's no pressure. I'm not a wreck. I'd like you to be a wreck if your heart's a wreck right now and thumping and the Lord's touching you. If this is your night to get saved. I'd like to do that before we start if there's anybody. Anybody, just raise your hand real high. Anybody here? It feels good to throw the net out. But so this is new, isn't it? He's walking. I want to partake of communion tonight.